Welcome to Media Path. I'm Fritz Coleman. And I am Louise Palenker. You know, here on Media Path, it's our job to direct your attention to good viewing, good listening, good reading. We help you cut through the clutter and get right to the quality content. We also have some spectacular guests like we do today. Harry Elston is with us, one of the founders of a powerhouse late 60s group, Friends of Distinction. He's had a really interesting history in the business, as have the other members of the group. We're going to ask them all about it in just a few minutes. Wheezy, what do you have for us? So I've been watching some TV. Um, (laughs) I recommend that. Um, So it, Fritz, I know, I know you saw this last night, so we're going to talk about it. Uh, it's called The Woman in the Window. It stars Amy Adams, Julianne Moore, Gary Oldman, and Wyatt Russell, who may be the child of Kirk Russell. It's entirely possible. It's a psychological thriller a la Rear Window. Just replaced Jimmy Stewart's wheelchair with Amy Adams' agoraphobia. She witnesses something horrific in the apartment across the way. And because she's battling mental health issues and balancing meds, no one believes her, which is not good for your mental health. The dialogue is fun and fast. The camera work and the set decoration are rich and delicious. This is an adaptation of A.J. Finn's 2018 novel, Don't Expect Perfection. A lot went on to get this film made and presented to you on Netflix during the pandemic, but it's packed with scary twists and pillow-hugging turns, and I really enjoyed it. You saw it too, Fritz. Yeah, and it's an acting tour de force for Amy Adams. She was unbelievable and great, you know, momentary appearances by guest stars. I'm not a huge fan of this kind of movie. I, I it was like Rear Window with Lithium. <laughs> and, and I love the original by uh, Alfred Hitchcock. As a matter of fact, there's sort of an homage to it. They do a couple of freeze frames of Jimmy Stewart with a horrible reaction on his yeah. face. But it was it was a it was a seedier pants film from beginning to end, if you yeah. like that kind of movie. There's lots of homage and there's lots of sort of foreshadowing you know (laughs) where it's like oh i think that's gonna factor in later on (laughs) the kid was fantastic the kid was great yeah before you understand which side of the uh which side of the hush (laughs) the russell boy is good yeah you're gonna enjoy it it's it's great well i'm gonna talk about the underground railroad this is on prime video uh this is a limited series 10 episodes based on the Pulitzer Prize winning novel by Colson Whitehead. I listened to the book on tape, which didn't do it any justice. The Underground Railroad was a metaphor for the series of escape routes, safe houses, set up by anti-slavery collaborators that helped enslaved people escape the slave states of the South up to the North. The story that was most recently done that told this story, but more compact, was Harriet with Harriet Tubman. But this story uses what's called magic realism in that it describes a real railroad with tracks and stations built underground that's sort of a fantasy, which was the route for the enslaved people to find their freedom. Each of the 10 episodes describes a different struggle borne by enslaved people. Some that are familiar to us from historical stories, but some stories are deeper and more profound about the survival and humanity of blacks in the South pre-Civil Wars, directed by Barry Jenkins, who did Moonlight, and If Beale Street Could Talk. This is a beautiful experience from start to finish. Breathtaking cinematography, skilled acting from every character, especially the lead, the Cora Randall character played by Thuso Mbedu. This is heartbreaking. Also, Aaron Pierre, who plays the strong and charismatic Caesar, and William Jackson as Royal, but a special shout-out to Joel Edgerton, 
both disturbing and mesmerizing as the slave hunter Ridgeway. This is a gifted actor, and this may be, honestly, one of his most powerful roles yet. I love this series because it goes deeper than what is commonly known about the slave experience. I really recommend it. Okay, that that's really... It's, it's hard stuff for me to watch, but you've kind of compelled me that it's like my my duty. Uh, I watched a movie on the Netflix. Do you get the Netflix, Chris? Yeah. Did you get it? Okay. I do. It's called Concrete Cowboys, starring Idris Elba, Caleb McLaughlin, and Jarrell Jerome. A rebellious teen is sent to live with his estranged father for the summer, and you're saying, yeah, yeah, yeah. And I'm saying, hold up. His father, who lives with a horse in his apartment. And yes, of course, the angry kid finds kinship in the eyes of a lost and frightened animal. You were right about that. But this film depicts a tight-knit Philadelphia community of black cowboys who keep and ride horses downtown. Downtown horses and cowboys are in the movie. And it's shot so beautifully. Every frame is a wonder, especially the ones with Idris Elba. He is pretty. A couple of years ago, I saw a documentary at the Santa Barbara Film Festival about downtown cowboys in Los Angeles called Fire on the Hill. And they brought the cowboys to the screening. Wow. Yeah, maybe even a horse. Much like what is depicted in Concrete Cowboys' Philadelphia neighborhood, for much of the 20th century, South Central L.A. was an agricultural boomtown filled with ranchers, farmers, and equestrians. Since the city's establishment, Compton and the surrounding neighborhoods have always had a culture of cowboys. This culture has all but disappeared now in a wash of land-hungry developers, apathetic politicians, and subsequent gang activity. Fire on the Hill tells the story of the South Central and Compton cowboys and the last strongholds that they hold a horse stable known as The Hill that was mysteriously set on fire back in 2012. This documentary is the story of three of those cowboys and their fight to live out their vision of the West. Wow, that is a piece of yeah, history so, I didn't know. That's no, awesome. Exactly. So if you watch The Concrete Cowboys and you think, like, this is just mythical, it actually isn't. And it's it, a lot of... Great inter- suggestion. Yeah. I'm going to hang on the Netflix for a minute. Okay. This is a doc. It's called Money Explained. It's a limited documentary series. I think there are four episodes. I am clueless about all things money. I trust other people to steer me in the right direction with my money and just pray that they have my best interest at heart. This series is a fantastic primer about some basic issues concerning money. What I need is a ninth grade level explanation of all things fiscal, and this is it. There's an episode about credit cards, how they work, how not to get screwed. Another episode about one of our most important current discussions, student loan debt. It's fascinating. There's a separate issue about gambling. There's one about retirement and saving and not being screwed in the retirement savings area. Each episode explains how things work and suggests how not to stay in trouble. It uses very famous narrators like Edie Falco from The Sopranos and Nurses. It's got just enough snark to keep your attention. And there's lots of valuable information. I think it ought to be required viewing for high school students. It was really well done. Well, I have this fiscal question. Does it teach you whether or not you should spend money on Netflix to teach you about money? (laughs) You can plug that into the credit card discussion. Because that should be part of the core curriculum. And if you watch as much as we do, as as much as the student loan debt discussion. It starts to pay for itself. (laughs) (laughs) All right, we have a great guest today. We're so happy to have Harry Elston with us. 
Harry was one of the founding members of the hugely successful late 60s hit group Friends of Distinction. They had hits on both the pop and R&B charts like Grazing in the Grass, Lover Let Me Be Lonely, Going in Circles. They recorded and performed basically from 1968 to 1975. And there's a lot of other great music history connected with the members of Friends of Distinction that we're going to talk about. Harry, we're so happy to talk to you. How are you? Pleasure seeing y'all. I hadn't heard about your show until they told me about it, but I, I knew you, Fritz. I didn't know Miss Lady there. Well, she's, but, uh, she's a monster with a great career in radio back when you guys were hits and all, right? all kinds of stuff. Yep. No, I was a child. Oh, wait. I, I'm, I'm sorry. That's right. <laughs> but I was, I was rocking out to WKBW Buffalo, New York, Friends of Distinction. That was me. Buffalo, Buffalo. I got some friends in Buffalo. Yeah, yeah. I yeah, worked yeah. at WKBW from 1976 to 1980. I did Afternoon Drive in that 50,000-watt clear channel monster. But I want to ask you a specific question about uh, Grazing in the Grass, because it seems to me that you wrote the most iconically 60s lyrics in the history of 60s lyrics. Grazing in the Grass, <laughs> It's a Gas, Baby, Can You Dig It? So did you create this groovy lingo or were you reflecting the language of the times? Both. I was, I was, I was kind of, you know, I was right in the mix. Drug, sex, and rock and roll. I was right in the middle. I can dig it. But tell that story about driving. You were on the road and you're in a bus and you're driving by cows and you say, what a great way to live just grazing in the grass out there. Or was that a phony story you made up to not talk about marijuana? Oh, that's the kind of grass. I'm just now getting this, Harry. <laughs> well, it depends. Back in the, back in the day, I, I had a lot of grazing in the grass experiences. I have to tell you one day, but uh, it's all it's all connected. It's all connected. Okay. It's like I used to. I was on on, on tour with Ray Charles. We, we had a group uh, called the High Fives, and in that group it was Marilyn McCoo and Lamont Macklemore of the Fifth Dimension, and. Uh, we would, you know, we'd be traveling with Ray, and I would see these cows, you know, eating and and stuff coming out of the. Can I talk? How, how freely can I talk? You can oh, talk you can freely. say you can say the sh. Okay, so the the the, the, the cows eating, grazing and shitting. Sure. And it's, <laughs> it's a full day. <laughs> <laughs> that, that's kind of natural, huh? Yep. <laughs> But uh, anyway, that's that's where it kept sticking in my mind, sticking in my brain. So when when I, when, when the, we 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 uh, we disbanded a couple of years later, and uh, I was writing a song and grazing in the grass, you know, by Hugh Masekela. Right. And uh, I just took to his melody and stuff, the trumpet part, and I put words to it. But but in the back of my mind, it was these cows eating and shitting on the road. <laughs> so, so I went and I recorded the song, but I called it Flaking in the Grass. Okay. Remember when you, people used to say you flake? Yeah. And I had I had flaking in the grass and uh, I brought it back and they well, get out of here with that stuff. I said, yeah, okay. I said, well, can I use the same grazing in the grass words? They say, sure. I use that, and everything was a gold, gold record since then. Let me ask you this. I mean, Hugh Masekela had a hit record with the instrumental. Was that the first time that a second hit record had been made by somebody writing lyrics to a pre-existing hit? I can't think of another example. You no, know, I heard, but I can't think, and not as you guys can, but I can't think of, of, of another artist no. that, you know, Maybe I might summer, be the only one. Summer Place, The Letterman. Oh, there we go. 
That's a good. Maybe. What is, is that? It? A, was that an instrumental first? Wasn't it? There's a summer place. Wasn't it? No. Yeah, but was it an instrumental first? I thought so. Maybe uh, Henry Mancini, or it was from a movie. I don't know. Maybe I have the the wrong thing. But also like things like Born Free or uh, Moon River. You know, Henry Mancini oh, and then Andy Williams. River. But were they see, hits? A lot of those songs when they came out. They had lyrics, you know, to, to them. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, Grayson was, was, you know, he just had the instrumental, and then I lucked up and, and wrote some more. Boy, and what what a sm- what a record. What a smash. That oh, is. Yeah. That yeah. gets you it moving. Just, it was the attitude of the time, too. Yeah. Let's go back before Friends, Harry. You were, uh, even before the Hi-Fis, you were a backup singer for Ray Charles. And then just for historical purposes, you and Floyd Butler started your own group called the Hi-Fis. And then you... Started opening for Ray, and out of the high fives came Marilyn McCoo, you mentioned, and Lamont McLemore, who went on to start the Fifth Dimension. So it's a great tree of growth there. Talk about the Ray Charles experience. I opened for Ray Charles at the Universal Amphitheater one wow. time, and I went to get my picture taken with Ray, and I got tackled by four security guys who said, nobody gets their t- picture taken with Mr. Charles. Mm-hmm. I said, how could he tell? I'm just gonna stand there and get my picture taken. <laughs> wow. And they, they wouldn't let me get near him. I, I uh, you know, it was the biggest honor of my life. But, but I heard that, and I heard this from members of the Tonight Show band that played with him, he was a stickler for perfection. His hearing was so finely tuned because of his blindness, he could pick out somebody that was a quarter note off and would find you and jump on your case during rehearsals. It was not easy, right? <laughs> that is definitely true. That is so true. Can you imagine? Now, we, we were like, I don't know, maybe I was 20, 19 or 20. Marilyn was about 17. Lamont was a little older than me. But us as teenagers and, and Ray Hurt, we, we used to sing around LA at, at the jazz clubs, Mr. Contons on the strip and all, you know, and then and then after they had, when, a, when an act would come to town, like Miles Davis or, they would all play at the Adams West, over in the hood. Mm-hmm. And and we were, we sang jazz, so we were always on the bill there. So that's where I met everybody. But now Ray heard about us and uh, we went down and we had the audition. We we didn't you know we it was Mr. Mr. Ray Charles heck mm-hmm. we went and we tore it up, and he hired us right then and there, wow. and uh, we were on the road a couple of years with Ray. We, we our first recording was on his on his label Tangerine label a song called Lonesome Mood a jo- a jazz song. So then we we chatted with Ray you know we opened the show crashed a couple of times in the plane and stuff like that. But everything <laughs> was- wow, <laughs> he wasn't flying it was he. <laughs> yes. <laughs> no, act seriously. There were you had the pilot, Ray, and the co-pilot. Ray sat in the middle. I guess he was the engineer. But I wouldn't feel comfortable unless Ray was up there because he knew what he was doing. Like right. he was saying, Fritz, he's a genius. Yeah. Yeah. So you you could see him up there in the front, click, 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 click. And then he would he would he would when he got on the plane, you know, back in the day when we were Ray, Ray was it was on heroin, straight up, you know. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so he walked on that plane. He said, he, he hit his hit his he hit his leg. Let's get this mother sucker off the ground. <laughs> oh my god, oh, Ray was funny. Yeah. Oh wow. Wow. That's so cool. So then, what happened from what happened from there? Well, from there, we 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 toured a little bit more, and then we had what I like to call them internal differences. You know, right. groups. It happens. So, yeah. So Floyd Floyd took uh, Lamont's place, and then we had a, another girl who took uh, 
Maryland's place. And, uh, you know, we, 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 we did a little work, but not too much. Then we just disbanded. But I lived on a street called Ninth Avenue in Jefferson. Mm-hmm. And Ron Townsend, the big guy in the fifth dimension, lived on 11th Avenue. Okay. And we were friends. But I would see them going over there. I said, what the hell are they doing? I come to find out that hey, they were putting a group together. So Floyd and I said, well, hey, let's, let's, let's do our thing. So we put a group together and we became the Friends of Distinction. They became the fifth, fifth Dimension and we're still friends to this day. Wow. The original group was you, Floyd, Jessica Cleves, Barbara Jean Love. And then yes. when Barbara left to have a baby, Charlene Gibson came in. Charlene came in and sang Love Will Let Me Be Lonely. Yep, yep. And that was the follow-up hit to Grayson at a time when you guys thought, who knows if we're going to survive the leaving of Barbara. Charlene came in and knocked it out of the park with your second hit. Well, no, actually, actually, the second hit was going in circles. Oh. Boy. And then Charlene. Okay. But Charlene was a, Charlene was a godsend because she could sing her butt off. Oh, boy. Yeah. Like some songs she would do in one take. And then Jessica, Jessica, after she, Jeff, Jessica left the friend, she went with Earth, Wind, and Fire. After she left Earth, Wind, and Fire, she went to George Clinton Parliament Funkadelic, and she passed away in 2014, and Floyd passed away in 1990. Wow. So Barbara Love, Charlene, and I, you know, the remaining members. So you guys were all kind of parts of sort of the great, the great artists that sprang out of the Southern California area. Yep, yep, exactly. That, and it was it was it, because we had, we we you know they had the what, what is the 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 wrecking crew mm-hmm. yeah. well we had a wrecking crew in California mm-hmm. you know and Jim Gordon and and all the you know the Crusaders they used to play all our records and stuff so it was great it, we we were the wrecking crew in in L A back in the day mm-hmm. and now what would go on after the shows because I'm picturing that you guys are all kind of like a tight unit. And that you're all friends of friends and all dating each other. What t- Describe what would go on after the shows. Well, you know, Jim Brown was our manager, Fritz. Right. That, that in itself is a fantastic story. Talk about how that happened. Jim Brown, let's see. Uh, Fritz, you might know this guy. His name was Booker Griffin. That name ring a bell? No. I'm sorry. Okay, anyway, he was on KG- <laughs> KGFJ. He was a jock. And he was my roommate. But he knew Jim. So Jim was on the, on the verge of retiring from football, and uh, he'd come to L.A. and he'd take us all to the to the uh, Pro Bowl, you know. Mm-hmm. And then there was a beauty pageant called Miss Bronze California right. that we kind of we sang there. But Lamont was a ph- photographer, the house photographer. So after the after the beauty pageant, the party was at our house. Whoa. Need I say more? Okay. Wow. <laughs> I think you need to say more. <laughs> <laughs> okay. And then that's why I got, got, you know, got to be good friends with Jim. As a matter of fact, Jimmy, Jim brought my first Cadillac. So he was, he said, he says, uh, what, what, what are you doing, man? What, what, what are you going to do with yourself? I said, well, I'm trying to put this group together. He said, you trying to do it? I said, yeah. I said, I need a little help. He said, well, I'll help you. You, you get it together and you come see me. I got it together. Went and saw Jim. We paid our range of $50 a week. And we rehearsed for maybe eight months. Went to the, remember the Daisy Club, uh, Fritz? Yes. The day, went to the Daisy, we did a showcase at the Daisy, and the rest is history. Well, it was interesting because Jim Brown was finishing his football career. He went into exactly. show business. He, he ended up managing you and managing Earth, Wind, and Fire. 
Right. And there's a great story, because this is so different than the way the music business is now. Jim Brown got you these great showcases, and you had an embarrassment of riches. You had many record companies that wanted to sign you. You had to go around town and decide which one you wanted to take, (laughs) which is not the way it happens now, I'll tell you that. I know I was it was it was so it was so weird and I you know I knew a little bit about the business but the next day I didn't look they said Harry you got to go talk to these people I said what <laughs> and talking to these record companies that since I got in my mode you know my cool mode like I knew what I was talking about <laughs> and uh, but, but when we, we got to I, I don't remember all the record companies but I remember RCA record John Flores and he was a laid-back young kind of a cat and I got a good vibe with him, so we chose RCA, and we, we our whole career was on RCA records. So we did we did okay. We made them some money. Now you had one group that did not get along so well, and then you put together another group. What what are the secrets that you've learned to having a healthy group camaraderie and having every voice be valued? Or you know, what have you learned about how everyone can feel at home and a significant member of a group it's complicated isn't it no 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 that's a that's a as they say on tv that's a wonderful question (laughs) (laughs) matter of fact i got that from joe biden okay (laughs) (laughs) but but no it was like uh, fortunately when your name hit records okay we had grazing in the grass i performed that one floyd sang lover uh going in circles charlene sang um lover let me be lonely and Jessica sang a song called I Really Hope You Do. And you might remember this song. It was on KJ, uh, KJLH, Great Day. And Barbara sang that. Mm-hmm. So everybody had a hit song to sing. Mm-hmm. So I would just say, you sing this one, you sing that one, you sing this. And they would, that took care of the ego thing. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. And uh, because, you know, when they sang it, the audience knew the song. So, that, you know, they felt good about it. Right. And uh, so that's how we handled that. And we... It was it was it was really cool because we had no egos. I don't know why. I don't know why, but there was no ego tripping in this group. So and, it's about uh, they were really distinctive friends. Exactly. Very good. Very good. As a matter of fact, that was the name of the band before somebody changed it to Friends of Distinction. It was called the Distinctive Friends. Am I right, Harry? Yes, sir. Fitz, Fitz is doing his thing. Wow. Yeah, he studies. Well, who up was for the these person things? that decided to change it to Friends of Distinction? Barbara, I, I came up with friend, I came up with uh, distinctive friends, and she came, she said we we should we should try friends of distinction. I said you got it, baby, and that's that's how it, that's how it went down. So, yeah, you were talking about RCA Records, and um, when you got to the end of your string of hits and things started to taper off a little bit, uh, it it was it, it it was a conundrum for RCA because as you have said, they didn't have that many black acts. And they really didn't know how to market black acts. And you think that's why things began to soften up for you a little bit after seven. Yeah, it was like, uh, and then see, see the, the pop department and the R&B department, they would have fights, you know, because we had pop records and R&B records. And we were ca- like caught in the middle of it. But, uh, and then they didn't know how to market, you know, a crossover group like we were at that particular time. You know, there wasn't a whole lot of crossover groups. You know, the fifth did, did it, you know. And, you know, Ray and, and established artists like that, but new and up and coming, you know, they didn't know exactly what to do. I mean, they were good. They were they were nice people, and and, and they took care of us since then on 
six week tours and all that stuff and took care of us. But like I said, there were internal internal differences in RCA in terms of what records we want to put out. And, and we got caught up kind of in the middle of it. Yeah. Wow. That happens. But you did a lot of work that was important in the community. Tell us about the Mavericks flat. Mavericks flat. You got any, any of you guys ever been there? I have not. Mavericks flat was, 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 it's, it's still there as a matter of fact, but it was like uh, the Apollo, West Coast Apollo. All kind of groups would come there and perform. And I was, Jim was instrumental. And, and Jim put some money in, 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 the, in the, the Mavericks flat. But I was kind of like, to do, I would do everything. When the, when the Mavericks opened, I was a limo driver for the Temptations. Yeah, I want to so, get back to that because I want to know if you saw what I saw in Ain't Too Proud to Beg. No. Well, there's a lot that went on with that group. I know a lot went on, but I ain't too proud to beg. Uh-oh. I didn't... Not, the, not the song, the Broadway show. Broadway oh. show has everything, the whole story. And I've read Otis's book. So, you know, when we talk about group dynamics and how it's difficult to keep a talented, creative people together and cohesive, you know, their story is, is, a, is a good example of that. Wow. And, and when I was uh, the limo driver, it was the original guys. I mean, with David and Eddie and Paul, Otis. Mm -hmm. And uh, I got that. That's, that's a whole nother story. I'll tell you about that one day. But yeah, but but I got along good with them, those guys. And then and then one day they saw me somewhere and, I, and they said, you on stage, man? I said, yeah. So we, we had a good time. And then I remember when Blue... Blue, remember Blue got shot in the stomach up on Doheny. Oh, the bass singer. Okay. Melvin Franklin. Right. We call him Blue. Right. But Blue never, he never, he never uh, got over that gunshot wound in his stomach. And I, I would go to the, they come to Vegas and I come back, you know, see the show and I could see him going downhill, going down. And a few days later, he was gone. Mm. Yeah. So I got, I got some history with them. Well, they were kind of like the friends. Everybody had a hit record. I mean, uh, uh, Dave, I mean, what I mean is David had hit records, Eddie had hit records, and then Paul Williams, everybody yeah. had it at a different time. Yeah, but according to Otis's book, Otis is the only one who kept everything together. Yes. Everyone else was sort of problematic, and he was kind of the glue, and it was that was like trying to keep plates spinning, you know, on the on the Sullivan show. <laughs> yep, yep, yep. <laughs> And and then with with, with with Paul with his problems, I didn't know about that till I saw the movie. Mm -hmm. You know, but uh, the, hey, I never saw nothing, and they didn't, <laughs> so I couldn't say nothing. <laughs> Understood. Now tell us a bit. Uh, tell us about NIEU. NIEU. That stood for Negro Industrial and Economic Union. Mm -hmm. That's Jim's organization. That's what Jim wanted to do when he retired from football. Now, aside from the Mavericks, the, the Ma Mavericks flat, that was entertainment, if you could understand that, Fr Fritzy. <laughs> we, had the, we, we had the most beautiful girls after the fashion show, and then Mavericks, Mavericks was a monster. I mean, you would see Marlon Brando, you would see Kareem, you see Mike Warren, all kind of actors and actresses, Gene Seberg, Tony Curtis. Yeah, where is Where it? was the Mavericks? Crenshaw. Oh. Ah, okay. Cool. You know, you know, Crenshaw and Stocker were for uh, Magic Magic Johnson Theater in that oh, area, right, 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 right down the street from Baldwin Hills. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. It's still there. It's on Crenshaw. Yeah. 
So it was, was all going. Something. It was all going on there, right? Oh, oh, it was definitely going on at Mavericks Flatworth. They, they call it Mavericks Flatworth. That it was started by a guy named John Daniels. John made some movies and stuff, and he started in the movies. But uh, uh, he had the he was a, the the brain thrust behind, you know, Mavericks Flat. And he was also a friend of Booker Griffin's. And Booker was a guy who knew Jim Brown. And so Booker brought Jim on the scene and hooked us all up and. And that's, it went from there. Let, let me ask you something. You, you brought it up earlier. Uh, the West Adams area was, as you called it, the hood. And that whole series of uh, jazz clubs there and performance venues, and, and that was uh, a predominantly black neighborhood, but they had jazz clubs and entertainment venues down there. And did they, isn't it like New York and like the Cotton Club in Harlem? They drew white audiences. So it was, even though we were at a time of a lot of unrest in the 50s and 60s, that was a place where white and black audiences could mix. Is that yeah. right? That's definitely, definitely. This, yep, yep. I mean, you figure like this, uh, Dizzy Gillespie or, uh, I don't know, uh, Miles Davis, anybody would come to town to play, you know, they would play, you know, Hermosa Beach, the Lighthouse and different various clubs, the It Club, but they would always come to the Adams West after hours and it opened at two o'clock. So that you see all kinds of people from different walks of life and different different venues where they were coming from. They would come there and hang out at, at, at the place you're talking about. It was called the Adams West and then they changed it to the Kabuki Theater. Hmm. When you say two o'clock, are you talking about two o'clock a.m.? Yes. And and that's when it opened. Oh, that's, that's when it opened. Yeah. After the other after the other clubs closed. Wow. Okay. And then, so how late? How late did or how early shall I say? Did you go? We might stay to six o'clock that morning. And then, when would you sleep? When I'm asking as home. your mother. <laughs> <laughs> See, we we would do a show. You know, well, we had to do our little show out on the strip at, at Mr. Conton's, and then we would come to Adams West. So we, we, were, we were up 24-7, and we'd go home and sleep. Did you do what the jazz players do, where you do your show, the show you're being paid for, and then show up at somebody else's gig and, and sing there for a while and jam with them? And I just, <laughs> yeah. I, I, I just wish I was around for that era of the music business. <laughs> yeah, that was fun. Yeah. Would you jam with a lot of acts there that you weren't in their act and they weren't in your act, but you'd get on stage together and just see what happened? No, not not really, because it was it was structured because they had a time limit, and and then the the guys who were on the show they they had played you know their two sets at another club, so they they did their little fifteen twenty minutes and you know and then they went home. But it was like it was it, you could all the, all the people that you could see there. I mean, golly, big bands. Count Basie, oh man, it was, it was great. So it was a mix of generations. Yes, yes. And we were blessed. You know, I was thinking the other day, I was just, I had played with Count Count Basie. Oof. Wow. Did a show with, uh, did a, did, 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 you, hear that, you hear that commercial? Um, with, uh, Watts 103rd Street Rhythm Band. Express yourself. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Mm -hmm. That's Charles Wright in 100, Watts 103 street rhythm band yeah we did a concert with watts a count basie and the friends oh that was I, i'll always remember that right. but we were we were i mean we used to do laura nero uh uh ricky nelson kenny rogers 
all those, you know, we do. Kenny was an RCA act too. Did RCA send a lot of their acts out together? Yes, yes. Uh, uh, let's see, the Guess Who. Oh, yeah. Burton John Denver. Yeah. Uh, and a few other uh, RCA acts that we would tour with. That's cool. So well, your, your, your music had legs beyond the Friends, too. For instance, Going in Circles was covered by Isaac Hayes, The Gap Band, Luther Vandross, and uh, it just kind of keeps the memory alive down through the ages. There's also an interesting story. You guys were going to get back together in 1990, but, of course, Floyd passed away. Right. And right. one of the songs you had written for your reunion was called Check It Out, which turned out to be a great hit for Tavares, which was one of the premier <laughs> yep, bands yep. of the disco era. Yeah, Floyd, Floyd, remember LTD, the group called LTD? Yes. Yeah. Well, Floyd and Billy Osborne of LTD wrote Check It Out, and Tavares covered it. But, you know, we were, we were blessed. I mean, like, some a lot of people did Grazing in the Grass. A lot of people did Circles. A lot of people did Lover, Let Me Be Lonely. Uh, and then we had this song called when a little love began to die, and they, they, it was a big hit in Japan. I didn't know that. <laughs> my, my wife's from Japan, and I and I had to show her, you know. But, uh, <laughs> you need some we cred with the wife. <laughs> yeah. She said, "Who?" <laughs> <laughs> she said, sing a she little. The, How does it go? She knew the Osmonds. She knew the Osmonds, but she didn't know my group. <laughs> yeah, they know the Osmonds. Did you do a lot of international traveling when you guys were in the midst of your hits? Yeah, yeah, we did. We did some. We did some. You know, we, we did real good in the Philippines. Wow. Hmm. Yeah, the Philippine Filipino people can get down and sing. Mm -hmm. And uh, we had a lot of hit records over there. And, uh, you know, we went to it. Not, not where do you go to Italy, Greece, of course, England and stuff like that. We, we did a little, little, little international traveling. Yeah. I'll, I'll tell you, I. Uh... I I look back at the 60s, and for lots of reasons, it was, I think, a more interesting musical time because stuff could be more experimental. On the on the radical side, the raw side, you had Jimi Hendrix, which expanded blues-oriented blues rock and roll to its end point. And then you had the Friends of Distinction, and you had the Fifth Dimension, which had these beautiful, almost orchestral songs that were so sophisticated in their composition and beautiful lyrics. I don't know that that the music that you did would find traction today like it did back then. There's some just some beautiful orchestrations in, in your music that seemed bigger than anything we have now. Well, you know, fortunately, fortunately, um, you, you know, you know, when you write a song, it, it's it's a little different today than it was back in the day. But uh, I didn't even know I I didn't even know I had royalties from from grazing in the grass. Oh my! The first check I got, I went out and bought a Bentley. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> but uh, it's it was a lot different. It was a lot different back then. And to now they say that 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 period, that era, was like the in terms of the United States music transition, that was very, very instrumental with sixties and seventies music. So I and then and then the cold thing about it, here comes the Grammys. And I think we we didn't know nothing about no Grammys, you know. <laughs> and I'm look look up and we're 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 nominated. 
but we're nominated with the Beatles, the Stones, oh. the Fifth Dimension. Really? <laughs> you know, we did okay. I can't, I can't complain because Grayson, Grayson did pretty good. It was like I got a lot of awards for Grayson as the most performed song and stuff like that. So right. I ain't mad. God has good, been good to me. Yeah, I like your attitude. You know, just be grateful. And and Grayson is just iconic. That song is iconic. And uh, I'm wondering because I love listening to the harmonies. And uh, clearly, you guys put a lot of thought into the harmonies. Did you grow up? Were you a, a, a harmony fan growing up? Yeah, yep. Yeah. Growing up, I grew up in San Diego, mm -hmm. and uh, I went to Lincoln High School and Point Loma High School. And uh, we had an octet at Point Loma. We had an octet, and we would sing a cappella and and classical songs mm -hmm. and, and you know eight part harmonies. So that's where that's where I got my ear from, and then. I was I was a big fan of the four freshmen. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Ross Barber, you know, the tenor. That that's what I loved. I could tell his voice, you know. I saw him one day somewhere down south. I went to see the show. But uh, yeah, and and then doo wopping mm -hmm. at school, mm -hmm. you know, we, you know everybody had a group, and and is we had there was this song called Night Out. Ooh, night. <laughs> what did I do? Yeah. I changed the words to it, and it was it was a hit. the girls was all over me, you uh. know. <laughs> so that's like I said, oh, that, you can do that. That's pretty cool, you know. But uh, I did grow up doo-wopping, singing octet, and with groups. So that's that's where I got my ear from. What about church? Church start? Oh yeah, Gospel yeah, harmonies. definitely church. Definitely church. The 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 my daddy, my daddy played a little keyboard. So, you know, when you go to church, you see the, the, the deacon and the, the pastor, everybody's so refined and stuff. Mm -hmm. But they would come to my house, my daddy's <laughs> house. <laughs> Let it fly. And the, 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 the deacon over there drinking a beer. Uh -oh. that, did you uh -oh. see him drinking that beer? Whoa. That's like seeing your teacher in the supermarket. You're just like, wait, I didn't know <laughs> okay. that you could exist outside of school, but okay. So both, both your folks are musical though, right, Harry? Well, my mom... My now just my dad, just my dad. Okay. Yeah. But my brother, my brother, my brother had a song out called Hey Senorita. Back in the day, he had a hit record. Really? My sister could sing. So, you know, we had some in, internal talent, you know. Yeah. So when you would get into the studio, would you, would you work closely with the producer? Oh, sure. Sure. See, with, 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 uh, we we had uh, like I said, John Flores was a, a producer, and then John, John John was from Phoenix, and he had a good friend. His name was Ray Cork Jr. And Ray Ray was an arranger. Now figure this: we go on this, we go and we rehearse for nine months. We go, we do this demo on Grayson and the Grass. Mm -hmm. Then we hook up with RCA. We'd never met John Flores. We never met Ray, Ray, uh, Ray Corp Jr., so we didn't know what the hell you know they could do. They came in. Ray was a beautiful arranger. John was a beautiful producer. And then they, they, we had internal people in our group too: uh, Clarence McDonald, uh, uh, Rex Middleton, and uh, so we had internal. So they could relate. They could relate, and it made it a lot easier. But we still didn't know how that, that or orchestration would come out. But we walked in the studio. Now you figure this, you know, you, you, I'm used to going in the studio, maybe five or six people in there. We walked in there. It was 100 people. Really? <laughs> with, with strings and cellos and basses and stuff. Whoa. Oh, my God. So we, we did our, you know, they, we sang what they call a scratch track. 
so they would get a feel for your music. But uh, I was still, we were still nervous, you know, with all those people in there and, and hundred people, musicians and stuff. <laughs> Oh, yeah. This won't mean anything to anybody outside of Los Angeles, but this is my own historical curiosity. Where did you record that first, uh, the Grayson in the first RCA sessions in town? Uh, uh, Sunset and Vine. No, Sunset and Kawanga. Hmm. At the RCA building, uh, 80s. I forget the, I forget yeah, the address. It's right the same building. Across from the theater. Right. The, the, it just the Dome says, Theater. It just says BMG now, but it's the same building. Same building. Yeah, that's it. That's it. That's interesting. Yeah. Um, I want to talk to you about the choreography because you guys, you guys are up on YouTube and you guys, you guys would move. So (laughs) tell us about the thought that went into that, that presentation. Well, in terms of the choreography, we were, we were like, we were, we were geared to Vegas when we first came out doing the, the, uh, the audition, the showcase at the Daisy a lot of buyers from Vegas were there. So we had to get, think Vegas, and uh, but we had to hire choreographers. The choreographers made a lot of money on us because they would, we would practice here. Then when you go to Vegas to open the show, they got to go in there to make sure everything is cool. And you got to pay, you know, hotel salary and airfare and all that kind of stuff. But uh, so we, we, were, we were all geared for Vegas. We, when we went to Vegas, we were there with uh, Steve Allen and Jane Meadows. Oh, cool. We 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 yeah we hung with them. We went to uh, a club in in Vancouver. I can't think of it right now. But we 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 showcased for thirty days. We worked there, you know, to, to iron out the kinks. And then we went to Flamingo. We were there for thirty days, and we played the Flamingo, Caesar's Palace, uh, all of the clubs. We played in Vegas. Talk about a time where you got to meet an idol, someone that you had admired growing up. <laughs> I can I can say anything, right? I'm cool. Yeah. Mm-hmm. All right. My idol was Miles Davis. Okay. Mm-hmm. Miles Davis, and uh, when I got out of the Air Force, it, I was I was stationed at Travis Air Force Base in Nash- in uh, Northern California. So when I got out of the Air Force, I hung in Oakland. With my, my East Oakland, and uh, I used to jam with these guys. I couldn't play. I, I had I bought a flute. I couldn't play a lick, <laughs> but I would be there jamming with these guys, and uh, that's when I uh, that's when I really really discovered Miles Davis, and I would buy all, anything by Miles. I would buy. I'd go to San Francisco and see Miles at the jazz workshop or, or any of the clubs there, and then one time, I was in Boston at a club called the Sugar Shack. And who comes backstage after the show? Miles Dewey Davis. Oh, oh my gosh, I was I was I was in heaven. This was after and, one of your shows. Yes, oh, yes, that's great. yes. And he was he was giving the support. You should you should have more instruments. You should be playing this and playing that. He was right. He, you know <laughs> you, you know because Miles has his bands are always full. Yeah. And then we brought out the cognac. Okay. And then Miles was yeah. He said, well, let me bring this out. He brought out the blow. Wow. <laughs> so we were so we cognacking and blowing. I was in heaven because he was telling us some experiences. And then Miles, Miles, I'm, I'm trying to be as tactful as I can, but uh, there was a girl who sang with us and he was, he, he kind of had the hots for her. And uh, 
So I kind of, you know, blocked. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, protection. <laughs> so after we did the little cognac and the little blow thing, okay, man, it was nice meeting you, blah, 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 blah. We go back to the hotel. I'm going to my room, and who's two doors down? This <laughs> is Ma. Uh-oh. And the girl is with me, and Ma's down there. Oh, Lord. I had to protect her. Of course. Oh, you're right. You're a gentleman. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, but that was that was just my miles 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 story. Oh. I got a I got a, a, a another story, but I'll tell you it another time. Oh come on! No, Harry. you can't do that, Harry. <laughs> well, no, we Full did the show with Pat Boone. There you go. Okay. Oh, in Lawton, Oklahoma. So they were building, they were remodeling. So we went to do a sound check, and you step on the stage, and there's a. Uh, what do you call those thin boards, ply, plywood? Mm-hmm. And, you, and you, you're walking and you're going like this. <laughs> Damn, what is this? And they hadn't finished the stage. Mm-hmm. So we're, we're, we're doing a sound check and you go. Duh, duh. Wow. <laughs> you know, because the stage is vibrant, oh it's God. bouncing. Yeah. <laughs> so we did our little bit on, we did our little show. We did, we went on and uh, I hadn't met Pat. So we did the show. And after the show, the kids, ran over to see us and, and the old folks <laughs> say to see Pat but the dressing room was surrounded by kids and and we're in Lawton, Oklahoma so the cops said well I don't know what you're gonna do but y'all just follow me and and and, and we'll get out of here yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yes sir yes we got out of this we ran out of the dressing room it was in the gymnasium we ran out of there and we we're running not real fast, but you're running. The kids are behind us. What do we do? We run into a six foot ditch. Oh, what <laughs> put mud it's up to here? <laughs> we were laughing, and the kids pulled us out of the out of the, the brink. <laughs> you know, we were, it was it was just sloppy. You know, messing our uniforms and stuff. Oh, <laughs> but, but that was my story. So I I saw Pat a few weeks ago at, at an affair, and I told him every time I see him, I tell him about that story. Yeah. But that, that's my Pat Boone story. That's awesome. So when when kids discover you on on YouTube or online, what do, you know, kids are the music is brand new to them, right? So what do they, what do they tend to say to you? Well, a lot of see see Grace and and also those songs are fifty years old, at least fifty years old. So these kids, uh, Raven Simone did Grace and the Grass. She did a nice job on it. Really? And yeah, yeah, try to check it out. Yeah. And, uh, but the kids, I see little kids this high singing grazing in the grass, <laughs> you know? So evidently it, it left some, some sort of an impression, you know, for, for, for all these years. And I still get a little royalty check, you know, I get a little, little something, something, something. <laughs> I, if not, I'd be working for Fritz. <laughs> but, uh, <laughs> yeah. But yeah, that'd be we a were thin blessed. retirement we if you start working for me. Can I, can, let me, let me ask you a question. Uh, only because this is fresh in my memory from having heard uh, recently I watched the Rat Pack making of Ocean's Eleven and they okay. talked about what Sammy Davis had to go through in Vegas until uh, Frank Sinatra busted the doors open. And then I heard Smokey Robinson talking about the bus tours with all the Motown bands having to do the Chitlin circuit and, and the threats that they had to undergo. Did did you in your touring experience any of the awful racism that happened in the South, and um, 
all the heartbreaking situations that uh, black acts had to go through at that, that point in the 60s? Well, you know, fortunately, fortunately, we didn't. Um, and I, I, it was, I think it was the timing, the, 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 the atmosphere was, was kind of right during that, that, during that period. I'm talking about know, those certain years. And there was always some bullshit going on. Like one time, we're doing this concert at uh, Ole Miss with Roberta Flack. So, actually, uh, it, that was kind of that was kind of touch and go, because some of the kids. I mean, it was two black acts, but they they wanted us to go with them, and some wanted us to go with Roberta Flack. You know, after parties and stuff like that. Mm -hmm. So. I said, well, I'm going with these guys over here. And all of them had a, a half a pound of whiskey bottles <laughs> in, their, in their back pocket. You okay. know? So, but I went with those guys and I walked into this, I don't know, this, this hall or whatever it was. And the first thing I see is a co Confederate flag oh. about 12 by 12. Oh, wow. <laughs> I said, oh shit, what the hell? <laughs> you know? But those, hey, those guys turned out to be the coolest we drank and had fun and had a good time, good time. And but but other than that, now with Ray Charles, there was a little 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 funny stuff came on one 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 time. The cop came on the bus and the white people on this bus. <laughs> we had wow. a guitar player named Donald Peake. He was white, mm -hmm. Jewish cat, and Don Don had his guitar in front of him, and he said, "What about him?" He asked Ray, "What about him?" Race, oh, he's Mexican. <laughs> wow! But that was the only. That was the only. Uh, and then there were a couple of riots when we were with Ray that we had to get out of Dodge. They're throwing bricks and bottles at the bus. We had to get the hell out of there. Wow! But other well, than that, you know, and, and was, Friends was, was a crossover act. I mean, you were in the top five on both pop and R and B charts, and so you probably had a larger white audience than many R&B acts would have and maybe you're right you're like right yep 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 yeah but you still you have to travel all over the country and yeah. you're you're kind of uh adrift all you have is your bus and no, if they don't true. let you into a hotel or they don't let you have have go into a restaurant it's you know. so weird now we didn't we didn't have that i mean it was there it was there now maybe maybe because ray had been on the ro road so long you know Open doors and stuff. Now with 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 the uh, friends of distinction, we we I, I can't remember anything like you know a problem like that. I remember uh, doing a concert somewhere down in, in in Texas, and a guy, a guy, who had went to Vietnam, and he came back to the concert, and his girlfriend was just this guy, and it blew him away, and uh, we we got out of Dodge a little bit. Oh my. Pack, oh my goodness. Pack that bus and got the hell out of the dust. Whoa, that's wow. terrifying. Yeah. Wow. We have to end on something a little bit more upbeat than that, Fred. <laughs> no. Upbeat. This, this whole thing has been upbeat. I'm yeah. so, you know, Harry's had an amazing history of music. It's such a treat to talk to him. I love the old stories and how members of the original Wi Fi's branched out and started these other groups. It's all another piece in the history of American music. I just love learning that new yeah, stuff. Yeah, and now there's Wi Fi in every home and Starbucks. <laughs> Harry, it's just a, a joy to have you with us. Is there anything you would like us to promote uh, on your behalf or mention while you're, while you're here with us that people can check out? Well, not really. Uh, I am in retirement. I, I, I hung it up in 2016. Mm 
Mm-hmm. I did a tour over in the Philippines. And uh, I, I, I was just t- tired, you know, because see, people don't realize when you when you have a group, you got to, when you get new people, you got to audition them, you got to train them, mm-hmm. you got to pay them, mm-hmm. you know, and that, that's, that, that was getting old. Was yeah, the way old. they keep wanting a paycheck, I just, <laughs> kids, kids. And, you know, after but, a certain age, the road will wear you oh out. Oh, my gosh. You know. Yeah. So it's, oh, a, yeah, it's a harrowing yeah. I experience. mean, the, the road is so much different than it was, but you know, that back in the day, mm-hmm. we'd get on a plane and we'd, we'd smoke a pipe. <laughs> bring our own alcohol and, 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 and have them open the door for us. The plane is fixing to take off. Hey, my friend, just go, hold, hold, hold the plane. They open the door and you run on the plane. Oh, uh-huh. yeah, no more. Now you'd be tackled by the, uh, what is it? The <laughs> no, you wouldn't get security. that far. No, yeah. if you're a C, you have to get in the C line, and then it, <laughs> it's going right. to be a while. You're going to have a middle seat. Thank you, Harry. What a treat <laughs> to talk to you. Stay healthy, my friend. It was, right, Harry, it was great. It was a pleasure. Here come our closing credits. We would love for you to join us online on Instagram and Twitter, where we are at MediaPathPod, and on Facebook, where we are MediaPathPodcast. You can find full episodes with all kinds of bonus visual content on our YouTube channel, MediaPathPodcast. We would love to know what media you've been enjoying. You can contact us at our social media or write to us at MediaPathPodcast at gmail.com. We want to thank our guest, Harry Elston. Our team includes Dina Friedman, Francesco DeManda, John Maddox, Sharon Bellio, Bill Filipiak, Thomas Hubble, and you. Our theme music is by me and John Maddox. I am Louise Palanker here with Fritz Coleman, and we will see you along the Media Path. Fritz has one more thing to tell you. And listen, if you enjoyed this episode of Media Path, and we know you did, it would help us to be more discoverable by potential new listeners. If you leave us a quick review on Apple Podcasts. And if you're new here and this is your first time with us, please check out our back catalog. You may find some real binge-worthy stuff in there. We've had Diane Warren, recently Oscar-nominated. We had Tony Dow from Leave it to Beaver, Bill Moomy, who's been all over television at its inception. We had Harry. We've had all kinds of great uh, uh, people on here. Gary Puckett, the Cow Sills, uh, you know, people who were part of your uh, early life. So uh, we're, we're going back to the very beginning. You'll hear exciting and exclusive interviews with Henry Winkler, Keith Morrison. Thank you for spending an hour with us, and we would be overjoyed if you took a moment to share your thoughts with us or recommend us to a friend. Be safe. Thanks for listening. Thank you so much. It was my pleasure. Thank you, Harry. You were wonderful. No problem. No problem. We'll talk again. Yeah, absolutely. We'll see you in person soon. Bye-bye. All right.